This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, they say in journalism that uh, one of the keys is to be able to tell the story. And trust me when I tell you that there's no one better that I've ever worked with or heard, not just in tennis television, but in all of television, of telling not just the story of what's happening in front of you, but also telling a story, the backstory. And that's the one and only Mary Carrillo, who has her own backstory. Mary, how are you? Ah, <laughs> uh, Patrick, we go way back, don't we? We do. And uh, listen, <laughs> as I told Alec Baldwin on one of my prior podcasts, this is not about him asking the questions, nor oh, is this about right. anyone else's story, <laughs> but it's about your story. Because I know a lot of people know you from TV, know you from NBC and ESPN and Tennis Channel Now and HBO and the Olympics, etc. But a lot of people don't know about your backstory. Of course, we grew up in the same town. People do know that in Douglaston, Queens. But I want you to tell me about how you got into tennis initially. Oh, Patrick, well, as, as you said, so we grew up in this beautiful little town called Douglaston, right on Little Neck Bay, uh, which is part of Long Island Sound. And there's a, a Douglaston club. It's still there. In fact, Patrick, and you know my parents well, Tony and Terry Carrillo, 94 and 89 years old, respectively, are the, are the longest standing members of the Douglaston Club. Well, and they are still standing, yep. and they still go up there all the time. Uh, my dad still plays tennis. You're very familiar with his forehand. Yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, you do a very good imitation of Tony Carrillo. One of the, great, um, one of the greatest and purest <laughs> continental forehands you will ever see. I mean, it's a thing, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> He doesn't even hit it, does he? He's never had to change the strings in his right. He's never broken a string. He caresses he it, Mary. He caresses he it. He really does. Anyway, I so there were five courts at the Douglasson Club, and there was also a swimming pool. And I swam until I got swimmer's ear. And one day I got out of the pool, and I'm freezing, and my ears are hurting. And I see the Cernas. Remember the Cernas? Sure, Jimmy, Jimmy Cerna, yeah. Exactly. Yep. The Cerners were playing on that number one court, this really pretty uh, lower court at the club. Green clay, they, but green clay, by the way. Beautiful clay court. And they they had on their table knit sweaters and their Fred Perry shorts. <laughs> they looked so, apart from, they, it looked so elegant. And and they also looked warm. And I was freezing. I was, right. My teeth were shattering <laughs> from the pool. Right. And I, that's I, I think that's when I decided I got to get a new gig. And so I started playing tennis. And uh, there was a guy at the Douglasson Club at the time. You remember the late, great Dan Dwyer, sure. who was a terrific coach, who coached the Mayer brothers, among others. And I used to run down balls of his as he was giving lessons on good old court four at the Douglasson Club. That was his teaching court. I would chase down the balls and put them back in his basket. So He'd never have to, nobody would ever have to pick up balls. And I would just listen to Dan Dwyer mm -hmm. teach, teach tennis. And of course, it became my favorite sport. The fact that the McEnroe's were also playing at the very same time on the very same court uh, certainly piqued my interest. And uh, yeah. 
how much how, how much did you play when you were a kid with John? Because any any tennis fan knows that you and John won the French Open mixed doubles. You carried him there, just as I yeah, car- exactly. carried him to the Paris Indoor <laughs> title uh, years later. But uh, you know, how much did you um, actually play with him? You're you're very close in age. You're a tiny bit older than than John is. Yeah. But uh, I'm, 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 I'm older, John. Uh, so there used to be a very lively, I mean, there used to be a lot of kids who played at the Douglas and Club. There was a live, uh, there was a lively there ladder used- situation, as you would call it. We, we, <laughs> a lively ladder situation. Right. There were tournaments played. I mean, and, but the courts at a certain point of, in the, in the day that the courts emptied out and I would play with your brother. I'd say we, and we would play like you could play sets at a time. Mm-hmm. And, and there was no one around. And there came a day, again, this was on good old court four, which didn't even have doubles lanes, as you re- as right. I'm sure you remember. Yeah. I was playing your brother, and I was maybe 11 or 12, so John was 10. Mm-hmm. And he just clobbered me. I mean, I used to be able to live with him. Right. And one day, he just I just couldn't. It was one of those deals. And we sat down on that green bench and we were drinking water out of the can, you know. Mm. And I just looked, I looked at your brother and I said, you are going to be the number one player in the world one day. Wow. And he looked, and yeah, and he looked at me and said, oh, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, and Patrick, uh, I still consider that to be my first commentary and yeah. my first review. Yeah, well, guess what? <laughs> You've been right many times since, just as you were right then. I thought it was Harry Hopman, you know, when they took, my parents took John out to Port Washington Tennis Academy, and Harry Hopman said he's going to be number one in the world. See, I, I learned something even after all these years from you. It was actually yeah. you yeah. that said it. it was, well, no, because well, we were lucky enough. We li- we grew up in this beautiful little town, and uh, Forest Hills. You know, the U.S. Open wasn't far away. We had this beautiful. There was a rhythm to our to my summers anyway, mm-hmm. because you know the dock, the water was right down the block, little next day. So I I used the rhythm of the tides. When it was high tide, I'd be down at the water. When it wasn't high tide, I'd be up at the Douglas and Club. You know, the U- I hated when the summer was ending, but it meant that the U.S. Open was coming. Right. You know, there was just a very sweet. And I have to tell you, Patrick, um, when your mom died, there was a really pretty service at St. Anastasia's Church in mm-hmm. Douglas. And then there was we all met uh, at the Douglas Club afterwards. Right. And as we were leaving, and it's lovely, uh, as we were leaving, um, we were going down the stairs, your, John and I. And uh, you guys were all going to play some golf, Mark and mm-hmm. John and Patrick. That's right. And I gave your brother a hug, and I told him that it was a it was a very sweet, gentle day. And we looked down from the steps of the Douglas Club. You could see West Drive and then Shore Road and then the Bay. And John said, you know what? This really is a pretty place. We had a nice childhood, didn't we? And I said, yes. And he said, yeah, and you know what? Patrick has the same thing for his kids. Mm. Because you're, right. you're in Bronx. I thought it was so lovely that 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 it occurred to John that right. you were giving your three kids the same childhood that, that we've been given. You know, I'm, you know the picture I'm looking at right now. I got one picture here in my basement, which I've reorganized in my office since I, we went into this quarantine situation. My parents, and then I have that picture of me, John, and Mark. It was a selfie. Of course, John didn't take it because you know about him and f- devices. <laughs> Uh, but it was, I took the picture of the three of us that day, um, after we played at the Douglaston golf course, the public course there. In uh, yeah. So yeah. Nice memories. Yeah. 
So listen, uh, because you know, you and I have had the pleasure of working together, probably not as much as we would have liked just because you were always ahead of the game as far as working for the big, big networks before I was. And then I got my opportunity. We did work together at CBS. You were, you were stalwart there for so many years at the U S open and kind of brought me into that fold. And we crossed paths and excuse me at ESPN for a little bit, but um, obviously we've been around each other and I've always admired you for, you know, and I I think I may have said this to you at one point, you're probably, you're probably the only ex-player no one really considers you an ex-player because you're so good at being a journalist at being a storyteller so I always try to try to take a little bit from what you did still you know kind of do my own thing because we all have to do our thing but uh, you were able to sort of work your way into becoming as I've called you a real journalist who was an ex-player <laughs> how did that start and how, and was that always your mindset when you began your your journalism career I, I had no clear path. I mean, I was, I wanted to play tennis and I was, you know, playing on the tour, uh, but my knees were always bad. I was riding on rims by the end of it all. Uh, and I knew I had to do something else. And I was, I was thinking of going to film school. I mean, that was, that was the one thing I really, cause I had never gone to college. Um, and that was my thinking. Mm-hmm. And I was doing some teaching in between the operations, but I like even as a player, I I was writing stories for World Tennis Magazine Mm. and for some other publications. I like I would I would finish a match of my own and then go into the press room just to see what people were writing and who they decided to write their stories about Mm. and how they were putting it together. I always I really always enjoyed that part of it. Um, um, And I like that. Probably I even as a player, I think I, I was leaning that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and gradually, you know, what happened was I was given more and more opportunities in other sports, mm-hmm. uh, and that I, I just kept saying yes, when they would say, do, right. do you want to cover skiing? Yes. Do you want to cover the, the <laughs> luge and bobsled, which you did at the Olympics? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. I did. I yeah. have covered, I've done 14 Olympic games just because I kept raising my hand. Oh yeah. I'd love to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> Patrick, right. tennis is the only sport I'm at all fluent in. Right. But it's all about, you know, tell me a story. Tell me a good story. Mm-hmm. Do a profile. Let's do a historical piece. Let's do a cultural piece. Let's find out what makes this athletic heart tick. That right. I always really, really enjoyed. And then I've, I've gotten to work on documentaries. You've sat for uh, my documentary, the one I worked on uh, for HBO about John and Bjorn. Mm-hmm. Um, I love long-form storytelling. Uh, more than anything. So as I, in my dotage, as I age out, my plan is to do more of those. Right. That's my, but uh, you know, it's, it's fun telling stories. It's fun. And, and frankly, I mean, I was on tennis channel live yesterday reacting mm-hmm. to what Novak Djokovic said about how the molecular structure of contaminated toxic water can change with your emotions and positive. So of course, and his positive energy, mm. I went after him. I know I'm in the doghouse. I mean, if you if all you do is cover tennis and speak your mind, I've been in everybody's doghouse, and it's nice to do something besides that. Because, <laughs> because Keep your sanity, I, right? I, well, no, and also you know, uh, I'm sure this has occurred to you as well. If you're going to be critical of something, and you truly believe that you know you know your facts and and you know how you feel, as soon as you start talking, and the words get past your teeth into the ozone. 
you know you're in the doghouse. Right. And then you have to decide, all right, do I say it or don't I? <laughs> and, <laughs> and then and, just do and, your time. And thankfully for us listening, you always say it. <laughs> well, but you know as you're saying it that you're going to be doing time. Right. And, and, then, and then, you, then you accept that and say, it's one of the reasons why, frankly, I want to speak to Pepper. You're Yorkshire Terrier. I've done it. I do a lot of dog shows because I love dogs. Yeah, you've been on the Westminster I, Kennel uh, Dog Show a couple of times on USA, right? Done that. The National Dog Show, right. Beverly Hills Dog Show. I've, I've listened to your past, um, uh, a bunch of your past podcasts. And mm-hmm. Here's Brian Koppelman, who you're, you're Melissa, your wife has known forever. And Scott Foley, your daughter got all excited. I'm thinking to myself, Okay, which McEnroe might be interested in hearing what I have to say? And then I decided it was Pepper. Well, Pepper's it's sitting right here. So he's right here next to me, um, as always. Are, he's, he's, yeah, I are mean, those big ears perked up? I mean, nobody's been more pumped up about me being in quarantine for you know over a month than him. I mean, it's like we walk him like five times a day because that was my only exercise. And he just, she just chills out, chills out with me no. down here. So, no, he's, he's amazing, but... Uh, you know, when I, when I look at all the stuff you've done, I mean, one of the things I, you talk about the long form stories that you've done, uh, love what you've done over the years with uh, Brian Gumbel on his show, HBO's Real Sports. How many years did that last? Because that was tremendous. I, it's a great, it's a great run. I'm the, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the, the, the late great Frank DeFord uh, passed away a couple of years ago. Um, so that makes me the longest running correspondent mm-hmm. on what I consider the, I mean, the best sports show on television. I worked for, in 1996, my kids were little, uh, and I couldn't travel so much for ESPN, and HBO was doing Wimbledon, which I'd never covered before. Mm -hmm. So Ross Greenberg, who was the head of HBO Sports at the time, on Billie Jean King's advice, Billie pushed me, she's always been great to me. Uh, Ross hired me for the 96 Wimbledon. I did four years of that. And after the first year of the coverage of Wimbledon, the two weeks, I did coverage and then I did the late night show. I hosted the late night show, which I'd never done before. Right. He said, do you want to host it? Absolutely. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. give, me, give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, they're going to tap you on the shoulder if you can't do it. That's always right. been my attitude. Right. Anyway, at the end of that, he said, hey, there's this new show uh, on HBO called Real Sports with Brian Gumbel. Do you want to, do you want to, you know, do you want to do a, a a segment or two, you know, give it a try. Mm-hmm. Of course, I said yes. Right. And they gave me an absolute layup. My first, my first profile was of Charles Barkley, who was still playing. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even I couldn't screw up that. So, <laughs> and so I've been there ever since. That's amazing. So it's, been a, it's been a nice run. It's been about 25 years. Now, tell me when you, the night before a big match that you cover, whether it's, you know, for many years, French Open, Wimbledon, U.S. Open finals that you've covered, when, you, when you're preparing the night before or the morning before, whatever your preparation is, what, what is your mindset going into one of those big matches where you know, you know, the, 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 the non-tennis fan is going to be tuning in for likely the one or two times maybe they do a, a year. Right. It's a little bit different. Uh, it, it depends on the tournament. It depends on the, uh, you know, the player. Sometimes it's an unknown. Uh, and that's why you spend the night before digging in, finding stories, you know, uh, telling back stories of these players. Here's why you should care about mm-hmm. who's about to walk on that court. Um, and a lot of times, a lot of it, I mean, I'm sure we do a lot of the same prep. We both have very good research teams. 
where we work. ESPN is amazing. Uh, Tennis Channel has a good research team. So you get you get all that stuff and you read it through and you decide what you think might be important. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the match starts. And right. 90% of what you've studied for is gone. <laughs> right. It's not the match you thought it was. Uh-huh. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the match is, especially if it's someone like Nick Kyrgios. Right. Who, like, you don't know what that guy's going to bring, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, a lot of it, I like, I like giving these players elbows and and. and shoulders and here's who this person is you know here's mm-hmm. and sometimes it's easy if it's someone like coco golf who's so obviously a great player and a smart kid and but when when you got to the worst matches the, the matches where we both work hardest are the bad ones right a good match you can, you can just sit back and you know hope that your director's cutting cameras well and react and, and react just, and react to it well right yeah exactly but if you've got a sinker on your hands then all of a sudden you're talking about the fact that both their parents are were were Olympians, and you know, <laughs> right. you start you start pulling all kinds of stuff, you know, out of the notes, out of your keister, or whatever, you know, or or you try to you know you try to express where you think they may go, or or why this match isn't what you thought it would be, and and all that kind of stuff. It's, well, nobody can pull bad. more stuff out of the keister, Mary, than you can. Okay, nobody. Well, that's, that's <laughs> Quite a compliment. Thank you. you know. <laughs> um, when you when you look at where tennis is, I mean, I've, there's been a lot of. I don't want to get too deep into in inner politics, but I think I have you on, and it's a good time for just the two of us to chat because I've been, you know, obviously asked a bunch about the you know the potential merger. Would that be a good thing for the WTA and the mentor? I happen to think it would be a good thing for the long term health of, of of professional tennis. Uh, what's your take on sort of where? Um, tennis can go, you know, once we, we, we get through this ordeal and professional tennis can actually come back in some form that we've seen it in the past. How could it change, if any, moving forward that you think might benefit the sport? Well, first of all, I think tennis especially has to reimagine their sport and hopefully the merger, if a merger can happen, that would help a lot. I mean, there's got to be, but in the short term, so of course I'd like to see a merger. I mean, as Billie Jean continues to say, the idea of starting the Women's Tennis Association instead of a total union right in the beginning, a professional tennis, that was always plan B. Mm-hmm. Billie assumed that when tennis went pro, that the men and women were going to play together. She just assumed it. And of course that didn't happen at all. And there are so many roadblocks for that to happen now. And especially with the pandemic, if you don't think globally, uh, it's, there's not even a chance that any of this stuff can happen. Um, so yes, would I like to see the merger? Theoretically, ideally I would, but again, I know how many people say that there are just too many potholes, too many roadblocks, too many you know, television rights. How would that shake out? Even if it is equal prize money, would it be equal airtime? Mm-hmm. You know, does that mean that the men play two out of three instead of the you know, uh, is on-court coaching now going to switch up, you know, right. from, from the women to the men as well, or do you get rid of on-court coach? I mean, this, this, <laughs> this pandemic has exposed so many problems, not just with tennis, but with the whole world. Mm-hmm. And if you continue to reject globalism in a sport like tennis, I think you're, you've got no shot. But I also think that going forward, like in other sports, uh, everyone's talking about the fact that regionalizing mm-hmm. the sport is the way to go. So, so 
to my mind, yeah, you put the men and the women together in a smoke-filled room, <laughs> hopefully not <laughs> right. too smoke, right. and you and you and they're going to be throwing lawyers at each other and throwing contracts at each other and what. But that now is the time in this dead time for for people to start look at the 2021 calendar blank sheets, you know, of months mm-hmm. and say, all right, we've got to have a couple of months in the states. And we have to have to have a couple of months in Europe. Then we've got to have a couple of months in Asia. I mean, there. I don't see any other way to do it if you don't if you don't work together. Um, but it's it's going to be very hard. And again, I, I uh, it's. Uh, what do you think? I, I really do wonder how optimistic you are that tennis, that most global of sports, is going to be able to react well to this. Well, well, I'm not sure. Uh, I would. I'm. I've been saying from the start that I'd be surprised if there were any real, legit professional tennis this year. Um, that, yeah. that includes the U.S. Open, which I know they're still considering and you know talking about doing it with no fans and you know singles only, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. But you know, so I think that those things are unlikely to happen. I've always felt that regionalization of the sport, you know, similar to the PGA Tour and the European yeah. Tour in golf, would would be a good thing. In some ways, tennis is already—it's basically already like that, but it's just not. You know, you can't hold a tournament, for example, in France or let's say in the United States and have it count for the world rankings. You know, unless you open it up to everyone in the world. So, is there a way to make it Correct. fair? that you could have just European players play in an event or just American players or North American players um, play in an event that counts for their overall world ranking. That, to me, is the biggest sticking point. Um, so I'd yep. be surprised. I mean, I'm hoping. I'm even hearing, uh, I know you've heard it and you've been talking about it on Tennis Channel, about Australian Open, you know, some, some uh, questions about whether that's going to go off or doing that with just Australian fans as well. Correct. Yeah, I, that's, I mean, that is, I, I just hate that I, I on Tennis Channel yesterday I quoted my brilliant son-in-law Kadi, who you know we just keep watching so many deaths and uh, from COVID nineteen and his thinking is you know COVID nineteen might end up in this country being normalized the way gun violence mm-hmm. is normalized mm. um, that's just unacceptable it's just unacceptable so I don't blame Craig Piley who runs the Australian Open for saying we. We would have a quarantine period. We would only have Australian fans. It would only be from the Victoria part of Australia. I mean, you're, you have to protect your people first and foremost. Um, and that's going to change everything. I, and again, I'm, I'm looking, I'm talking to a couple of guys from IBM today. I've already spoken to my, my good friend, Leo Levin of oh, IBM. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, you know how smart that, because I'm wondering how, again, trying to reimagine what tennis would be like without fans, what all sports mm-hmm. would be like without fans. So, so what do you do? Do you make it more interactive, like like FaceTime Live? Do you do you create algorithms where uh, the clapping can go up and down the court, and and there could be speakers on the court? So um, the almost like a, almost actually, like a video, yeah, like a video game, almost like a video game. You're yeah, but it's actually two I, players I mean, playing. And and I, by the way, I'm not sure I even like my own idea, but yeah. <laughs> the idea that you can do it for other sports, you know, get uh, very specific, you know, coding done for every sport so that when an NFL game is going on and it's an empty stadium, at least there is some kind of ambient noise created by the viewers, mm-hmm. not phony, you know, laugh tracking stuff. Right, right. So Interesting. Anyway, that's what I've been talking about this week. And, and again, 
is it too schlocky? Is it too hokey? Is it does it make it look too much like a video game? I don't know, but I do know that if we don't start thinking in those ways, um, we could have some some dull looking sporting events. Yeah, and, we which, can, and, and, and by the way, Patrick, I don't know if you are of the same mind as me, but I happen to know that my physical presence at sporting events has absolutely contributed to the outcome. <laughs> I absolutely. I mean, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm with you on I that. Know absolutely. Right. I, it has affected so much. Right. me being there yep. and not breaking eye contact with my team or my guy with your brother. Mm -hmm. I have gotten drawn through so many matches just because I stayed <laughs> right, just throughout be, the whole thing. Right, you got you got sandwiches <laughs> together. <laughs> no, but that, you know what I mean. I do. I like, know exactly I, what you the mean. The fan experience. Yeah. I mean, that is that's big. That's huge to me. All right, let's 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 wrap this up because we could go on on tennis politics forever. <laughs> what I want to when I want to kind of finish and get back to because you, I remember years ago uh, when we were I think we were both working for ESPN at the French Open, and you put together one of the most beautiful and brilliant pieces about the beauty of tennis and just the <laughs> game itself on red clay. Do you remember that? Yes, I do, and I wish I had a copy of that. I I was really I was. The whole, my whole point was I, I happen to love the clay surface. And mm -hmm. I, my whole point was I want – my kids were little at the time. Mm. Uh, now they're 32 and 28, but at the time they were kids. And, yeah, I bet I, I wrote a, a piece called I Want My Kids to Be Clay Quarters. Right, right. Um, and it was just sort of this homage, this, this essay about, about what it takes to play on clay and how, you know, not everyone who thinks thinks alike mm -hmm. and how – you know, the resilience necessary mm. to get up and continue to fight. And I think red clay really brings that out in people, that whole idea of resetting resilience. Yeah, that was a, that was a sweet, that was a sweet little piece. Well, um, what was sweet about it was in, in, in all the madness and, you know, that you've just discussed the politics of tennis and all the, um, you know, the different networks that we've both worked for and, and everything else that goes on in, in sort of the tennis professional world there's there's something i think about the beauty of the game and just the the, the game itself that you get and you still appreciate um and you're able to put it in words better than just about anybody uh, thank you my friend i feel the same way about you i love sitting next to you growing up i love sitting next to you in a tennis booth i hope we get to do it again someday and i hope i hope tennis comes back someday soon so do I. And I'll leave you with this final thought, Mary, because I was thinking about this over the last couple of days uh, in preparing to talk to you. Not that I really need to, to prepare, but uh, I remember when I was in grade school at Buckley Country Day School in Roslyn, where I used to get on the bus from Douglaston. And uh, yeah. there, there, was a, there was a science teacher there named Mr. Grammatico. Okay, he used to teach me science, which I wasn't wasn't my best subject, by the way. Um, and there were a couple, you know, we we used to get a few of us on the bus from Douglaston. Most of the kids who went there were from Long Island, other parts of Long Island. But there's a few of us from Douglaston, and uh, we were, you know, we were rambunctious, maybe might be the word. And and you know, we had the history of my brother before me, as I've had my whole life, and Mark, my other brother. And the doctor uh, and, the, and the professor, Grammatico, and he had this accent. I believe he was Greek initially. My accent, well, it doesn't really matter where he was from, but he had an accent. And he said, 
what is it about you kids from Douglaston? Is it something <laughs> in the water over there? <laughs> so I thought you would appreciate it, particularly of your history of, of swimming and being a, around the around the, the dock in Douglaston. <laughs> what a lovely question. And, 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 and if there's anybody who I could use as another example who's a little bit, you know, off kilter, and it's something about the water, it's the one and only Mary Carilla. Uh, I, I take that compliment. I consider it high praise. Patrick, I, I love talking to you. Love talking uh, to you. I appreciate you uh, coming on with me. You stay well, and uh, you hold that that new grand. Is it's a it's a, your granddaughter, right? Three-month-old baby Rhea, the greatest uh, baby in the history of absolutely. Oh my goodness, you're the best. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Mary Carillo, everyone, the one and only. Holding court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.